Hello and welcome to the Securities Compliance Podcast presented by the National Society of Compliance Professionals, where it is our mission to help you put compliance in context. I'm your host, Patrick Hayes, Senior Counsel at the Calfee Law Firm, and today's show is a very, very special one. You see, today's podcast features the fourth in a series of shows we refer to as the Lessons from the Frontline series. We've talked about these shows before, but for some of our new listeners, the Lessons from the Frontline series focus on real-life, tough-to-tackle subjects that other industry pros and regulators have faced on the front lines of our industry. Think of it like a fireside chat. Better yet, maybe think of it like this type of podcast is your opportunity to sit down with an industry expert at your fall cabin retreat, grab your favorite hot beverage, and just start talking about some of the most critical issues affecting the investment management industry, and specifically the crypto space on today's show. To help guide us through today's conversation, we welcome in Neil Matra and Jaime Werke. Whether it's issues in AI, the cloud, custody, DEPs, crypto, gamification, and everything in between, the SEC's FinHub and FINRA's Office of Financial Innovation sit at the forefront of what's happening in our industry. They are working hard on the front lines on the investment management frontier. Suffice to say, I cannot wait to hear what they have to say. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the crypto conversation. As we move into the interview section of today's show, I am incredibly pleased to welcome in two very special guests in the crypto space. First, we have Neil Matra, who is with the SEC Strategic Hub for Innovation and Financial Technology, also affectionately known as FinHub. Neil is a senior special counsel and is the crypto specialist in the Division of Trading and Markets, where his work focuses on initial coin offerings, as well as broker-dealer, fund-related and exchange ATS matters relating to digital assets and DeFi, as well as FinTech more generally. Neil received a Bachelor of Civil Laws degree from Oxford University in 2004 and a JD from Columbia Law School in 2010. Prior to joining the staff, Neil worked as a corporate and securities law associate at Sullivan and Cromwell. In addition to Neil, we are also very pleased to welcome in Jaime Werke with FINRA's Office of Financial Innovation, also known as OFI. Jaime is the head of financial innovation and senior director at FINRA. In this capacity, he's responsible for leading FINRA's Office of Financial Innovation, which focuses on analyzing financial technology innovations and emerging risks and trends related to the securities market. As part of these responsibilities, Mr. Worky works to foster an ongoing dialogue with market participants in order to build a better understanding of fintech innovations and their impact on the securities markets. Previously, Mr. Worky served as Deputy Associate Director in the Division of Trading and Markets at the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission and as counsel in the SEC Office of the Chairman. Prior to joining the SEC, he was an associate at the law firm Skadden and with a practice focusing on corporate law and as a graduate of MIT and Harvard Law School. Neil, Jaime, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the podcast today. Pleasure to be here. Thank you, and likewise. 
So I thought for many of our listeners, we would kind of kick things off. And I think this would be really, really beneficial for a lot of folks that I know are going to be very interested in a lot of the things that you all get to talk about today, uh, whether it's crypto or digital or AI. Uh, there are so many exciting things happening in the investment management space of which both of your respective offices are heavily involved. But I thought we might start, if we could, maybe, but by just giving a little bit of background about each of your respective offices, both, you know, the SEC FinHub office and the FINRA OFI office. And so maybe I'll, I'll go and I'll go in reverse, uh, I'll go in reverse order from the introductions. And, you know, Jaime, why don't you tell us a little bit about FINRA's OFI office? Sure. So our Office of Financial Innovation was actually opened up only about two and a half years ago. And, and it's over arching mandate is really to facilitate innovation in a way that supports investor protection and market integrity, which is the overall mandate of FINRA. And I'm truly a believer of the power of innovation to benefit investors uh, and the marketplace. But it's also important to keep in mind maybe some of the risks that could be introduced. If you allow me to digress a little bit, uh, a year or so ago, uh, a good friend of mine gave us, me and my wife, this uh, anniversary gift, which was an adventure tour in West Virginia, where we got to go whitewater rafting, as well as uh, do some, um, some hiking up in the mountains and so forth. And my first reaction was, you know, this is going to be so much fun. You know, uh, we're going to get to go down the rapids. Hadn't done that in a little bit of while. And, you know, it's the middle of COVID. So, you know, it's even better. And my wife's reaction was, well, you know, are we going to have, you know, helmets when we're going? What class rapids are these? You know, where exactly are we going to be going hiking? And, and so, you know, it's important to keep in mind both of these perspectives, right? So this idea of being excited about something new that you're doing that carries a bit of risk, but also having the ability to step back a little bit and say, look, you know, here are things we need to think about before we take on this adventure. In a similar vein, you know, as technology gets introduced into the marketplace, there's a lot of excitement to be had about the potential ways it can benefit investors, the firms, the marketplace. But it's also important to step back and, and kind of think about, you know, uh, what are new risks are being introduced into the system and what are the implications of those? And that's really what the focus of our office is, is really to kind of be that part of the organization that's thinking about what the new things are and, and kind of helping the organization step back and think about what the risks are as well. Yeah, that's great. Thank you, Jaime. Neil, I'm going to turn it over to you. Maybe I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit of background on the SEC's FinHub office and, you know, kind of its its formation, where it sits now in and kind of what its what its overall mission and purpose is. Sure, Patrick. And, and you know, uh, I don't think I can top Jaime's uh, wonderful <laughs> anecdote, but right. I will say that our, our, our offices are, are similar in some ways. Um, I think, you know, firstly, we were formed around the same time, about two and a half years ago, actually, or dates back to late 2018, if I'm not mistaken. And, um, you know, it, it, it really calls on or draws on um, sort of expertise from the various divisions and offices within within the SEC. So, of course, the FinHub has its own director, Valerie Spanik, but it also, it also calls on expertise from the various other divisions and offices within the SEC. So, for example, if you've got an offering that we're looking at or that we may be involved in, uh, you know, corporation finance will, will sort of have a role to play. Property dealer matters. Trading in markets will, will usually have something to say. Um, ditto for funds with investment management. And so it, it's really kind of an all arms group within within the commission itself. It's, its remit or its mandate is is very very similar to what what Jaime has has outlined. It it really coordinates the SEC's oversight and response regarding emerging technologies and financial regulatory and supervisory systems, including specifically I think in the areas of distributed ledger technology, blockchain, 
which forms a, a large part of our work, but also automated investment advice, or what, what's popularly called robo-advice, digital marketplace financing, and artificial intelligence slash machine learning. Um, those are also areas where we where we often um, get involved. And one of the things that, uh, that we do is um, something that, that unfortunately we've had to suspend during COVID, but which has been a very uh, a wonderful source of learning for uh, FinHub itself, as well as hopefully some help to entrepreneurs. We actually have uh, P2P meetings with entrepreneurs and, and others uh, at a number of our regional offices. So we've done, done P2Ps in Boston, for example, in, in California, Philadelphia, Texas, uh, and you know, I've, once once COVID goes away and, and things normalize, hopefully we can we can get back to to, to uh, doing some more of those. But even during COVID, I think we've had robust engagement with the entrepreneurial community outside, and we we routinely meet with innovators and entrepreneurs, um, you know, Zoom meetings or or WebEx meetings or what have you, and and, and sort of walk through new ideas new business concepts, uh, new sort of technological innovations in the in the capital markets and in, in the securities markets generally. So hopefully that's, that gives you um, some idea of what the FinHub is and what it does. Yeah, no, that, that that's really excellent context. And and I'll, I'll echo some of your sentiments. I mean, I, I will say with both of your respective offices where it's uh, I've been able to work with, you know, representatives from both your offices in, in different capacities, and one of the things that I really, really appreciated in 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 all of those instances is really how how collaborative the process was. And, and certainly, I think given kind of the the topic areas and, and the fact that we are dealing with oftentimes um, subject matters that that do you know tend to be on the more innovative side, in that we're we're honestly still trying to kind of figure them out. And and I have so appreciated both of your offices and uh, your willingness to collaborate with with the industry in general. So that's great to hear that that those meetings will you know continue here in, in the near future. Speaking of connections to the industry, I know, you know, Jaime um, Finra in, in recent years has pushed out a couple of different, I think, really fantastic white papers. And one of those that I thought would be excellent for us to dig into a little bit and, and would really like to get your take on was the one on artificial intelligence in, in the securities industry. Maybe if you would, for, for our listeners' benefit, maybe talk a little bit about uh, the, the white paper and, and maybe some of its kind of you know, basic positions. Sure, happy to do so, Patrick. There were the three, three key things I would say that came out of uh, that report that we put out, and, and it's been about a year now since we put out that report, and we had a follow-up kind of uh, AI conference that talked about it. One of those key things I would say is this idea that, you know, we frequently think about artificial intelligence as something that's going to be coming in the future or something that's, you know, we have to plan for as something that's going to be coming. And really what our investigation, our research found, uh, having talked to over two dozen market participants is, is it's already here today, right? It, there's a lot of use cases in the securities industry and more broadly the financial industry for AI that have already been incorporated into firm systems today. And there's probably even a larger number that are being contemplated for the future as well. Um, the other is that this idea of AI as used as an umbrella term is really needs to be kind of broken down a little bit because what specific uh, artificial intelligence uh, technique that you're using really has implications for what the potential um, risks are, what the potential things that you can actually achieve. So for example, there's things like uh, machine learning, uh, deep learning, 
natural language processing, computer vision, each of those various techniques offers um, its own set of challenges, uh, as well as its own set of abilities to solve different types of problems. And it's important to focus on both what problems are you seeking to solve and what portion of the of the kind of the the, the securities uh, markets systems they're being applied to and which of those systems are being applied because that really goes into kind of the risks that are being introduced into the system um, as well as kind of you know what are the actual functions that you're actually seeking to achieve and in that vein I think what we tried to do was drill down into well where are AI applications being used what are the specific AI applications that are being used um, and, and I'll summarize it by saying that we found it in three broad categories of where they're being used. One is the customer experience. This could include everything from like um, virtual assistants to chatbots to other types of features that allow you to engage with, uh, with the firms um, in a way that's based off of, of an AI-based system. So for example, you could even uh, potentially go on um, Google Home or Alexa and say, you know, what is my account balance, right? So that's that's kind of the interface between big tech and and kind of the broker dealer community to be able to figure out what's what's in your account uh, and potentially one day to be able to figure out, you know, whether you want to trade in an account or not. There's other features such as chatbots, which I'm sure everybody's familiar with, where you can get kind of some basic rudimentary questions answered in a way that's that's much simpler uh, for the firm, but also potentially gets you access to information on a quicker basis as well. Another key area that we saw that artificial intelligence was being used is in the investment process itself. This include, this include things like portfolio management as well as trading. There's a number of AI applications that are being developed to assist with the trading process. This included things like the timing for trades uh, to, to help get best execution, uh, being able to figure out what platforms help you uh, potentially obtain best execution, as well as other types of methods. Um, and on portfolio management, we've seen it being used to inform the registered rep about um, different product sets or asset classes that may be a benefit to the underlying investors. I would say with all these techniques, what we've seen, at least to date, is that they're being used to almost augment the human that's involved. Uh, sort of think of a as bionic man, you know, like where he has this uh, set of uh, tools that make him kind of more powerful than he actually is. In the same way, those these AI tools are being used to kind of augment the registered reps and to give them access to information and insight that they may not otherwise have that they can feed into the underlying investor themselves as opposed to being kind of fed directly into the, to the investors. Although that's still potentially possible, but where we've seen the applications, it's more kind of assisting the humans who are actually doing the interface with the underlying customers. The third area where we've seen um, AI being used is more on the operational size and, this, and specifically around um, uh, AML, KYC, uh, but also other types of compliance functions as well as risk management. So I'll pause there and see uh, if you have any other thoughts or questions on that, Patrick. <laughs> well, one, I, I had to say, Jaime, your, your analogy game is on point uh, today. <laughs> Those are both <laughs> excellent, excellent analogies, uh, both at the start to describe Ophi and then here with and describing kind of one of the functions you're seeing AI being used uh, in, a, in a, I think in a pretty effective way. Certainly I have absolutely, I would agree with you on, on the last point you, you mentioned with regard to seeing 
more AI being used with regard to, you know, other compliance functions. AML KYC is a huge one. You, you mentioned that. And even in, in different uh, aspects of compliance testing and, and other elements that, that where you're doing reviews of accounts or other stuff like that, I, I, I uh, see some interplay there. So, Jaime, that's really helpful background. I guess maybe to, to flush out a couple of those concepts even further, are there particular challenges that, that you see in the AI space or are there particular challenges that you see firms facing in the future as it relates to this area? Yeah, you know, there's some there's some areas that are very unique to AI, one of which is this idea of explainability, right? So typically with uh, most kind of automation processes that firms have adopted prior to AI, it was almost like an if-then statement. So you could trace the logic path for how a decision was, was specifically made. But in the context of AI, especially with processes such as deep learning, you may not necessarily have a clear path of how you got from point A to point B. But it's still important to have a level of explainability so that both the firm itself from a business standpoint can understand how decisions are being made. And from an investment protection regulatory standpoint, you can explain to regulators kind of what are the what are the, the main uh, factors you're going into making decisions and making things are not things are not deviating from where you'd want them to be. So this is something that's 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 kind of new um, and, and is a challenge for firms. You know, there have been uh, various types of solution sets that have been offered, some as other AI systems being used to explain uh, existing AI systems. So kind of a, almost like a worm in a rabbit hole, right? But uh, but they're using AI in order to be able to kind of respond back to what the what the factors were. The other is kind of, you know, having processes in place where you can at least figure out or a set of circumstances, what should be the, the potential set of responses so that you know you're not deviating from where you should be going. And this goes into what factors are the ones that are being taken into account to drive a decision. So maybe not for specific examples, you can't trace through the exact decision-making tree, but for a group of transactions, you should be able to trace out the decision tree and what factors were the ones that drove the decisions a certain way. And I think it's really important for firms to think about as they're adopting AI systems, especially in things they're, they're customer-facing or in the key systems, do they have a grasp on what those explainability issues are? And then are there ways to mitigate concerns that may be uh, raised? For example, do you have um, limits that you set in terms of what the, the platforms can do, the AI platforms can do? Do you have various type of governance or testing systems that are in place to kind of do an ongoing uh, diligence in terms of how the AI systems are forming? The other, I would say, key challenge is in the context of the potential for data bias. You know, the AI output that you get is only good as the data system that you're actually using. And, and there's there's different kinds of data biases. One is from a statistical sampling standpoint. For example, if you're sampling only kind of a subgroup of the overall population that you're really trying to get at, you may not get an overall response that's consistent with what you're potentially looking for. But there's also uh, biases that may be uh, issues around disparate impact that, that may be applied to various categories of, of investors. And this can include things like, you know, if, for example, the 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 way you were teaching a machine uh, based on machine learning was based off of data sets where discriminatory practices had been used in the past, for example, things like redlining, and you're using the same type of, of decision making in terms of trying to teach the machine, that could exacerbate existing problems that may exist today. So it's, it's important to think about those issues as you're developing AI systems. 
Yeah, no, that's that's really helpful. We we've seen even some recent commentary of late, at least I have on that's come out from the staff where, again, lo- looking at some of the, I'll call it larger, more thematic uh, type comprehensive reviews of certain systems and approaches and other stuff that, that might help flush out some of those, some of that additional data on, on topics like that. One of the other, I think, interesting things that you've seen, certainly a huge migration toward over the last, I'll call it five to seven years for many different types of registrants, both in the you know, BD and in the IA space is this, you know, journey to using the cloud more for many of their different service providers. And as a result of that, you're, you're having a lot more sensitive information that's obviously being placed on the cloud. And so there's a growing importance to make sure that firms have built the proper protocols and systems in place in order to, again, help properly uh, affect that transition. And then obviously continue to supervise and maintain in you know, in an orderly fashion. And and I know just recently, I think FINRA's OFI's, uh, I think FINRA's OFI office pushed out a, a, another white paper that, that talked about many of these, you know, different considerations and, and kind of implications for the securities industry as it relates to cloud computing. Maybe to, to kind of kick things off, you know, Jaime, what, what was kind of the primary impetus or, or reasoning behind wanting to, you know, craft the white paper to begin with? Yeah, you know, we're obviously uh, very big users of cloud uh, cloud services ourselves here at FINRA. But this report really was designed to focus on how our member firms were uh, using uh, cloud and really looking to answer a few questions, fundamental questions around the adoption of, of cloud within the broker-dealer industry and more broadly within the securities industry. The first question is, is, is around kind of like why. Why are firms seeking to migrate to the cloud what are the benefits they're uh, designed uh, or seeking to achieve and, and what have been some of the complications they've run into as they, they began their cloud journey? The other question we were seeking to answer was, was how, like how are firms moving into the cloud? Specifically, what process are firms using to migrate to the cloud? Are they going all in? on the sense of kind of moving all their systems all at once into the cloud? Are they taking a step-by-step approach where they're kind of putting small increments of, 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 of their businesses or operations into the cloud? Are they doing more of experimenting on what the cloud can offer? Looking to see like how they're, they're going about that process. Uh, and the final question w- was around what, and specifically, what are the implications of migration to the cloud for firms, both in terms of their business models and their operations, and from a regulatory perspective as well. And the idea with the paper was to have as a, serve as a resource for firms as they're thinking about the questions around cloud adoption, being able to learn from the experiences of others, as well as being able to have insight into some of the fundamental questions um, around kind of what are the potential benefits or challenges they may face and what are some of the regulatory considerations that may exist. Yeah, yeah, it, it's really interesting. And, and certainly, Neil, feel free to, to add on to anything that, that you're seeing on, on your side of the house for on the cloud computing side. I, I will tell you that in my kind of own anecdotal experience, I would say in the last three to four years, one of the positive developments I've seen as it relates to the cloud is really the amount of third-party due diligence that I see so many firms now fully incorporating into their compliance programs, right? And just making it part of a staple where 
you know, every quarter, every, every month, even depending, I guess, on, on how many you might be using, but, but really where they're sending out those, uh, you know, cybersecurity or information security type questionnaires for folks that are using the cloud uh, for a variety of different, what I would call mission critical functions. And, and you're seeing a much greater focus on that. I, I don't know, maybe I'll, I'll ask you both, you know, Jaime and Neil, are you seeing firms make some progress on, on that front as well? Yeah, I would echo that that line of thinking, Patrick. Uh, definitely from what we heard from firms, um, some of the key areas from a regulatory standpoint that has been a focus um, has been uh, cybersecurity, uh, both in the sense of kind of making sure that the systems themselves are configured correctly so that when they interact with a cloud-based system, the data that's being trans transposed over to the cloud is done in a secure way, but also what are some of the internal risks that may exist as in terms of um, who had the administrative capacity related to the cloud and the data that's, that's on the cloud. Um, some of the other kind of key regulatory considerations that, that we talked about include things like data privacy, things around kind of outsourcing vendor management. Uh, for example, when you are, you know, kind of asking these cloud service providers to kind of outsource some of this function, how do you think about some of those issues around making sure you have an understanding of, of what the systems that they're using incorporate, how you're interacting with those systems, whether you're getting SOC reports, other types of due diligence around what the cloud service providers are doing, and then another area has been around kind of business continuity, uh, both mm. in terms of the potential positives that may exist. For example, you know, the ability to go from one set of, 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 of servers that a cloud service provider may have in one region to another region, depending on what, when something goes down, but also thinking through about potential lock-in risk that may exist when operating with a specific cloud service provider and are there ways you can mitigate some of those risks to assist with business continuity. And then finally, the other area that we heard a lot about was around record keeping and what the use of the cloud means in terms of the record keeping requirements that exist for firms. Yeah, that's great. No, that's that's super helpful context and really appreciate you kind of providing a little bit of background on that. I know, again, for many of our member firms that are currently engaged in, in such activities, it's uh, it's certainly a, a good confirmation that that they're applying their resources in the right, you know, in the right space. I'd like to shift gears a little bit and and get to a topic that I, I know, you know, certainly is a, a focal point for for both of your respective departments. Which again, really, we'll move to kind of a couple different items that touch on the crypto and uh, and on the digital asset space. And and maybe Neil, if I I could turn to you, one of the things I know that uh, the SEC has been working on, and in fact, I, I think if I'm right, that they still have a comment uh, kind of period that, that's open to the industry is with regard to custody of, of digital assets. And would love to hear kind of an update from you, certainly if if, if that uh, comment period is still going on. And then any other background, uh, uh, just as far as, you know, how the SEC's FinHub office is trying to approach this very difficult issue of custody with, with regard to digital assets. Sure, yeah, Patrick, I think it's always a good time to discuss custody in the crypto context. And I think, uh, you know, market participants in the crypto industry generally almost all have at least one horror story relating to, to custody in, in, hmm. involving hacking or theft or, or an unintended uh, transfer of, of digital assets or in one uh, tragic case, the death of a platform operator 
uh, and the loss of you know the the the, the assets that that he held uh, on behalf of his various investors on his platform. So it really is literally a billion dollar question. And I think you know in in the at the commission we've been tackling it in a number of different ways. I think there's two parallel tracks that I'd speak to here. One is the work that's done by the Division of Trading and Markets, my own division, as well as uh, the, the work that's been done by the Division of Investment Management, which typically uh, looks at managed funds, uh, whether those are mutual funds or, or private funds or otherwise. And so I think you know on the, on the trading and market side, we've gone from what I would call a no custody solution to a custody solution. And what I mean by that is that we started off by, by reviewing some of what we'd, we'd seen in the industry, talking to industry participants and coming up with ways in which industry participants, broker dealers in particular, and alternative trading systems, ATSs, could um, facilitate trading in digital assets without actually taking custody of digital assets. So we would we were looking at things you could do in terms of matching trades, but allowing people to to settle bilaterally or settle off the platform. And and you know that was kind of a a no custody solution, if you will. So it was it was a solution which allowed trading to continue, but but didn't contemplate broker dealers or ATS is taking custody. And you know, we we provided that guidance, I think, in July 2019. We refined it some in September 2020 after 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 talking to to many market participants, talking to FINRA on a number of occasions. And we we actually refined that through a no action letter to FINRA, which I mean will will know very well. Uh, and so you know that's kind of what I would call the initial stages of of trading and markets approach to custody, which involved what I would call no custody. And then from there, I think we moved uh, since December 2020 to what I would call a, a full-on custody solution. And, and that is really a custody solution for, for so-called special purpose broker-dealers. So these would be broker-dealers that are set up to do digital asset securities. And, and they specifically do digital asset securities. We, we provided what I think is, is kind of like a safe harbor, which essentially says that you know if you follow these eight odd conditions and you, you, do, you, you meet these eight odd conditions and you function as a special purpose broker dealer, uh, you know, we that that will that will protect you from uh, SEC enforcement in the custody context. And, and so uh, what are these conditions? I mean, they range from things like making sure that customers get adequate uh, disclosures, risk disclosures regarding the, the nature of these assets, to actually checking the security and the resiliency of the blockchain and, and, and features like that. So uh, there's about eight of these conditions, as I mentioned. Um, some of these conditions, for example, involve not doing digital assets that are not securities. So in that special purpose broker dealer where you're doing digital asset securities, you would not be doing digital assets that are not securities, such as, for example, Bitcoin. And then I think you know you would have restrictions around doing traditional securities in that same special purpose broker dealer. So you could use it, uh, you could use traditional securities for, for certain limited purposes, such as for net capital or for hedging. But for the most part, you wouldn't be able to use them. Uh, you wouldn't be able to do traditional securities trading in, in that special purpose broker dealer. That was a statement and a request for comment that was issued in December 2020. And since then, we have received, you know, I, I think a fair volume of comment from industry. We're always, always open to hearing more and, and, and listening more from market participants in this space. But I think we have gotten a sense of, uh, you know, perhaps some of the, some of the pain points, some of the sens- sensitivities around the custody question. This is very much an iterative process. And so I, this is by no means, I think, the last step here. It's just you know, something that we continue to sort of engage with. So I mentioned, I think, two, two paths. And let me briefly 
touch on the work of the Division of Investment Management. You know, my colleagues in investment management will obviously have much more to say about this, so I'll keep my my section brief. But in investment management, I think they they have actually a definition of what is a qualified custodian under the Investment Advisors Act, so uh, which includes, for example, banks and broker dealers. And so I think you know, investment management has has put out a letter. It dates back to November 2020. Uh, you know, asking for comment on the proliferation of state chartered trusts that are that are taking custody or have you know been put forward as digital asset custodians by in a number of different states Wyoming for example or New York and um and and you know investment management has invent, has invited comment on whether to the extent to which state chartered trusts uh, should be considered qualified custodians how they how they function how whether their activities are are sufficiently similar to, to those of qualified custodians under the Investment Advisors Act. So, uh, like I said, I, I think those are two sort of tracks, parallel tracks on, on which the qualified custodian, uh, on which the custody question is developing within within the commission. So hopefully that provides uh, something of an overview. Yeah, no, that's great. And and I was going to see if Jaime, you know, for for your part and, and, and for Ophi, are, are you seeing some of your broker-dealer members uh, approach the issue of custody with regard to digital assets in, in the same way that Neil described, or are you seeing some some different approaches? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's consistent with what Neil says. Uh, you, you know, I, the first step is really, you know, having a clearly defined way that broker-dealers can custody uh, uh, digital assets, their securities. And, you know, initially, as in the joint statement by the SEC and FINRA that was provided, they, we talked, we spoke about ways in which broker dealers can engage in, in, in various digital asset based uh, uh, activities without having to custody, right? For example, you could run an ATS where you would provide matching like services, but wouldn't necessarily be custodying the, the digital assets. And then uh, more recently, obviously, the SEC put out uh, a statement for special purpose broker dealers that would enable them, subject to various restrictions, to be able to custody digital assets. And, and obviously, that process is being worked through by firms uh, as well. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's really helpful background from both of you. And obviously, the um, the crypto space, the digital asset space, there's no shortage of different topics that, that we could really dig into custody obviously being one that that uh, is certainly a tried and true path i think one you know there, there's another one that's that's maybe a little bit newer and that certainly you're seeing a lot more buzz about of late and so neil maybe yeah, I'll, I'll turn back to you on this one which is bitcoin etps and and I know that the SEC uh, has, I think, you know, requested uh, for comment on on some of these uh, th this particular type of, of digital asset. Would certainly welcome, you know, your thoughts and feedback. And and really, I guess I would just ask, you know, what is the uh, kind of data gathering, or or what's the purpose behind kind of requesting for comment, and and what kind of feedback are are you seeing so far? Sure. Yes, and and this is another. Uh both a topic that's both uh, timely, ever timely in some sense for the last uh, couple of years and, and one that uh, gets a lot of press. So I, I think that, you know, there's, again, there things are moving along a couple of different um, tracks. So you've got attempts, I think, to, to launch a 
physical Bitcoin product. So this would be a trust that basically holds Bitcoin or, or another digital asset and that issues shares to the public. And, and this is a relatively easy way for, uh, or intended to be a relatively easy way for the retail public to, to sort of access the value of Bitcoin because it's expected that the shares will generally track uh, the price of Bitcoin on the market. So there are products out there right now that actually do this, but I think the challenge for a number of sponsors has been to try to get a product that's actually traded on an exchange. So as you said, an exchange traded product. And I think there's uh, two things, like I said, you know, there are physical products that would be holding Bitcoin and would be exchange traded. On the other hand, uh, as you've seen, I think over the last uh, couple of days, I think starting, I think late last week and into this week, the, there's been the emergence of products that are exchange traded, but that hold Bitcoin futures. So they don't hold physical Bitcoin. They essentially hold the Bitcoin future. And I think, you know, last week we saw the ProShares Bitcoin Strategy Fund. This this week, I think we've seen, seen the, the Valkyrie uh, Bitcoin Strategy Fund join, join ProShares. And, uh, and so, you know, these are, these are products under the 1940 Act. So they're effectively investment company products. The physical Bitcoin products, uh, for the most part that I've seen, are, are sort of 1933 Act products. They are not investment company products. And those 1933 Act uh, physical Bitcoin products, they typically require approval from the Division of Trading and Markets before they can, uh, before they can, 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 can be exchange traded. What we've seen in the case of the physical Bitcoin products is that uh, you know we we look to see whether the the, the sponsor of the product or, or the, the exchange that seeks to to list and trade the product, the exchange that um, would like to actually trade the product, has met its burden under the Exchange Act under Section 6B5 of the Exchange Act. And so you know that burden uh, encompasses a, a number of, of factors. But in the context of the physical Bitcoin, Bitcoin uh, products, one factor that's been significant is whether there's a surveillance uh, agreement with uh, between the, the exchange that's actually going to trade the product uh, and a regulated market of significant size for the underlier, which in most cases is is Bitcoin. And so, you know, if is there one of the things that we, we look for is is to see whether there is actually this surveillance agreement in place with a regulated market of significant size. And we've we've given some color around what is a regulated market of significant size. And so uh, this standard, which I think in popular parlance has come to be known as the, the Winklevoss standard, is one that has not been met as yet by a physical uh, Bitcoin product. But but this is obviously a dynamic sort of uh, space. And we, we um, I think at this time we have something like a dozen or perhaps slightly more than a dozen physical Bitcoin products out there that we have noticed and put out for comment. We've, we've sought comment on, on, on the, the nature of the underlying market. We've sought comment on the, the, the custody aspects. We've sought comment on a, a range of different aspects of these products. So, so that's on the 33 Act side. But as I, as I noted earlier, on the 40 Act side, we've actually got Bitcoin futures products that have gone, that have gone effective, that have gone live, that are exchange traded now uh, on an automatic basis that are not subject to, to scrutiny by, division, by the Division of Trading and Markets that are subject to um, the scrutiny of uh, investment management, but, but which have gone, gone live on an automatic basis. So, so very exciting times, very dynamic times um, on, on, on those products. And I expect uh, a lot of sort of buzz to continue around those products for uh, the time to come. Yeah. 
Yeah, if I could jump in, you know, um, I should probably preface this in all my comments with uh, the remarks I make here today are my own and not necessarily those of FINRA or anyone on the FINRA staff. Uh, I think it goes particularly to the comments I'm going to make now. You know, I think it's important to step back a little bit here and think about, you know, look, there's a desire by the investing public for exposure with respect to various types of digital assets or non-securities, things like Bitcoin and Ether. Right. But there's also a realization that the spot market for these products are really not subject to um, uh, regulation by a federal functional regulator. And uh, what that means is that the quote unquote exchanges or really trading platforms that trade these products are frequently not subject to any specific federally regulatory federal regulatory requirements. So things like wash trades or other types of activities can occur on those markets. And, and some would say they actually frequently do occur on those markets. And so there's a level of risk that's involved in these markets that, that's not part of the standard securities markets or, or something that's regulated by the CFTC in terms of the futures markets. And so the question becomes, as people want to invest in these products and they want to develop derivative types of products that allow them to be able to do it in a wrapper that at least gives the implication that it has more safety around it because it's viewed as security or it's viewed as a future or something else that's that's more traditional regulatory space. What are the things that we as regulators need to be thinking about and what are the things that investors should be thinking about when when they're operating the space? Because it is different. You know, it's it's not the same as other types of products that people have seen before. And I think you have to balance that with the, this desire for people to actually gain ability to gain access to ability to investing it in it, but also making sure that people are knowledgeable about the ways and it's just potentially different. I think that's very valuable color there from from Jaime and, and really it, it does put, put things things in perspective. Also I'd like to thank Jaime for for raising the standard disclaimer which I'm going to follow him on. So everything that I say here today is 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 literally just my opinion and not the opinion of any 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 of the commissioners or the chairman or or the staff. And frankly, given the dynamic nature of the space we're in, I mean, they may not, may not even be my opinions within a couple of days. So, I will say, I think that, you know, I, uh, Jaime raises a very good point regarding the uh, differing nature of sort of spot and futures markets, I think, in, in Bitcoin in the United States. I mean, the futures, Bitcoin futures market, uh, in CME, for example, is you know, subject to a regulation by the CFTC. It's, it's a regulated market. Uh, it's a market regulated by the CFTC. Bitcoin spot markets, on the other hand, you know, they may they may um, follow certain norms around um, money laundering, around sort of knowing know your customer regulations. You know, some of them may have may 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 have a, a state regulation. They may may comply with certain state regulations. You may have, for example, New York bit license or other things. But in terms of being a regulated market or the equivalent of a regulated national securities exchange, I think uh, you know they're they're certainly not that. So I, I think bearing that in mind, bearing in mind the unregulated the nature of the of the spot markets, I think is is critical in sort of understanding the dichotomy between um, spot products in this in this space and, and some of the futures products that are actually trading on exchanges today. Yeah, that's that's really helpful background. And and also Neil, I can say you know, look, as an attorney, that is one of the best disclaimers. I may have to may have to use that one myself about being able to, uh, you know, with, even within a couple of days, I can I can can change that around. But but the the point is well taken, which is that this space is in fact 
moving so quickly and how we approach certain items in the market is evolving every single day. And and I mean, you both, we, we, we talked about the Bitcoin ETF, but even more than Bitcoin, right? There's a number of other firms out there right now that I think are waiting on, you know, broader crypto ETFs, you know, and big names too, right? Not just Fidelity, Wisdom Tree, you know, VanX, Skybridge, we talked about Valkyrie, ProShares, you know, there's, there's a lot of firms out there that are that are really interested in this space and again you're just seeing a a ton of demand which is why i think jaime i think your remarks are are you know they they certainly resonate with me that that again we want to make sure we're able to kind of try as best as we can to wrap our arms around what's out there before again you know letting uh there being such a demand on the investor side to get into these things without knowing exactly what it is they're getting into so one of the final topics I thought would be really great for us to tackle on today's show relates uh, to uh, gamification, which is, you know, I think one of the things that would be excellent for us to, to really dig into and consider is in that honestly has been at the forefront of the industry in recent months and certainly even stemming back right to, to January of this year and everything that happened with, with the GameStop event. And so I, I think, you know, one of the things that I would be really interested to hear from you both is uh, your, your feedback on a, a concept release that I believe the SEC FinHub office recently pushed out on gamification. And they talked about some of these different elements. Maybe, Neil, I'll, I'll start with you. Could you give a little bit of background on, on the concept release and, and some of the purpose behind it? Yeah, and, and so I think the concept release itself was released in, in, in late August. And it's really just a, a request for information and public comment on matters relating to the use of digital engagement practices by broker dealers and investment advisors. So this digital engagement practice is really, is really an umbrella term or a portmanteau term for a, a range of, of things. Uh, for example, behavioral prompts or, or differential marketing or game-like features or other design elements or features that are uh, designed to engage with retail investors on, on digital platforms, such as, for example, websites or portals or applications, as well as the analytical or technological tools and methods that sort of underpin them. So that's uh, kind of the, the, the range of things that we are, that prompted the request for comment. And, you know, that's, that's, a, that's kind of a multiple, but perhaps I can, I can sort of provide examples that may, that may be easier for, um, for the average uh, consumer to, to, to relate to. Sometimes, these digital engagement practices can take the form of games or, or, or specific context contests. You can have contests where you basically do virtual training, or you can do uh, you can you can have social networking tools where digital platforms may be linked to internet con content. Uh, some digital platforms may embed social networking tools into their into their platforms. You can have sort of points or, or badges or leaderboards. You can sometimes have digital platforms that use notifications through emails or texts. There can sometimes be things like visual cues, inter interface design elements that may provide visual cues, including by displaying certain information more prominently than other information. So there's really a range of, of, of practices or, or engagement practices that we're looking at in this in this context. And and certainly it's not our case or or at this at this stage, of course, we we're just requesting comment, but we recognize, I think, even at this very early stage, that you know there are both benefits, benefits as well as risks uh, to 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 uh, to many of these practices. 
you know, in terms of benefits, I think they can actually deepen engagement with markets in many cases. They're, they can sort of spur wealth creation activities by by people who otherwise perhaps may not have uh, have visited the markets or, or traded on the markets. Um, it can also sort of you know, build, in some cases, uh, healthy activity around sort of retirement accounts, all that. But but I think at the, at the same time, I think the risks are also uh, you know fairly fairly clear in certain in certain situations. People may get in over their heads. Uh, there may be situations where people don't quite understand what they're doing or the um, visual prompts or other engagement practices that they're that they're uh, that they're exposed to don't quite make it clear what the risks are. Uh, so, for example, you may be undertaking margin trading without without quite knowing it. And and that could be a, a tremendous uh, you know source of, of financial instability for for um, for many investors. So uh, you know just recognizing the fact that there's a range of tools out there and and that these are these can have both benefits and risks at this stage. I think the release is really just aimed at at trying to solicit information about these engagement practices by by investment advisors and by broker dealers. And I think you know Jaime will probably have uh, much more specific content on on some of these rules, but you know there are there are there are questions around sort of how broker dealers reconcile uh, their obligations under uh, under the federal securities laws as well as FINRA rules, for example, with respect to 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 customer suitability, for example, with respect to uh, even sort of basic things such as account opening and and sort of how these play out in the digital engagement context. So, for example, if you're if you're engaging with a customer uh, through a website or what seems like a game format, is that really a suitable format for you to to sort of be able to discharge your suitability obligations as a, as a broker dealer? Is the customer getting the information that the customer requires? Is 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 there adequate disclosure of the risks uh, that are involved? So th- that's kind of a I think a high level overview of of the release itself and and perhaps some of its objectives. Yeah. So, you know, if I could add on, one of the fundamental questions is around kind of what is the new world that we're operating under, right? So you had this old world where you basically had brokers, either uh, typically real registered representatives, real human beings that would provide uh, advice to to, uh, an investor where they'd be able to say, you know, look, this is a recommendation we're making on this type of securities. This is the process that we're undertaking to do it. And there's rules around that process. Or again, in the old world, you'd have kind of basic nuts and bolts kind of web interfaces typically where a person could have a self-directed account and on that self-directed account, they would go through and kind of make their investment decisions, presumably having some type of experience or knowledge about the process. But what's been really introduced, I would say, and it's fairly recent uh, introduction in the past four or five years and, and, and kind of ramping up in the, in the past one or two years is this process where you have these app-based systems that provide um, nudges or provide um, influences that potentially steer investors a certain way. Uh, uh, many of these nudges or influences may be things that are short of recommendations, but at least in my view, they're definitely designed to elicit certain types of behaviors. And, and what we've heard is frequently firms will do A-B type of testing to see what type of behaviors are being elicited and which things, which ways of kind of having the app interface is more effective in terms of type of eliciting those type of behaviors. So given you're operating in this kind of new world where they are potentially influencing factors that are being built into the app to influence investors, what does that mean for the old world 
in which you had you know two kind of bifurcated roles one when there somebody was giving you specific advice another world where you were kind of doing things completely on your by yourselves and i think that's one of the key questions that are being raised by these gamification processes right so as people are being sought to be influenced what responsibilities what role does the broker dealer itself have uh, what should the investors be aware of in terms of how they're interacting with these applications and what those applications may be trying to push them along in terms of, of what actions they want them to take? Yeah, that's a really good perspective to provide on gamification that I, I don't know. I mean, certainly even in the in the articles I've read and in, in hearing regulators and those you know industry participants talk about it. Uh, but I like the way that you both have framed the issue in that it's not just about, you know, we, we hear the term recommendation, right? And like every registered investment advisor and broker dealer out there, you know, has heard that term recommendation. You see it all, lots of disclaimers that say this is not a recommendation. And, and we kind of all attach a certain probably denotation and connotation to that specific word. But what about other types of things that are built into certain you know applications or online platforms or other arenas that are trying to influence just like a recommendation is obviously given in order to try to influence some certain behavior well there are these other practices right there are these other things that are built into those systems that might also try to influence the person that is receiving them. And so I appreciate that kind of perspective on it because it certainly does draw a connection there into why these digital engagement practices would be something that both FINRA-ZOFI and the SEC's FINHUB, and just, I think, both agencies in general are, you know, the, the SRO and the agency are, are looking at together because obviously we want to know how investors are receiving information and, and what's influencing their own decision-making. Yeah, I think this is where we get into the uh, unsatisfactory territory of sort of facts and circumstances, because, you know, it, obviously, I, I think if there is a security in the mix and, and, and what you're advising or what you're providing sort of content, what your content relate, relates to is a security, then I think you get into the murky territory of whether what you're doing is providing investment advice. And so, you know, are you an investment advisor under the, the 1940 Act? So if there is a security there and, and what you're effectively doing is providing investment advice, I think, uh, you know, you're, you're potentially in, in registration territory or you're Depending on, on on sort of what how much you do and, and what how many what what assets right. you've got under management and all that, I think factually right. um, you're it's it's very possible that you could be um, skating on thin ice. So I, I think though that you know there this gets very complex when you when you when you're in the world of digital assets because in many cases you know people are haven't necessarily done their due diligence on as to whether. The asset that they're speaking about is a security. And so without answering that threshold question, you're often taking a significant uh, chunk of regulatory risk, if you will. If you're if you're not sure whether something's a security, then it's it's certainly possible that a, a range of sort of requirements could, could flow from that if if we find that it is or if or if, or if that, that uh, asset does turn out to be a security. So I think particularly in the crypto context, I think this is this is an area which where I think a lot of people unwittingly or unknowingly can can uh, wind up playing a role that they didn't necessarily think that they would be playing as an invest as an investment advisor or as a broker dealer in certain contexts. Mm -hmm. 
And maybe, uh, you know, Jaime, would, do, do you have any any response to that, to that comment from Neil and, and what you're seeing on, on the FINRA side? Yeah, you know, we're definitely seeing a number of different features that relate to specific things that broker-dealers are doing on their platforms, things that, if you notice, like games on sign-up, um, social networking tools uh, that allow you to communicate with other investors where they may be talking about securities or they may be talking about digital assets that are non-securities. And so I do think this idea of gamification does bleed into some of the issues we've been talking before about digital assets as well, right? We have seen a number of instances where on the platforms, there'll be, we, we might be on a broker platform and, and that broker may have an affiliated business that does a digital assets business. And you may get a pop-up that says, you know, look, you've been investing in these types of securities. Do you want to invest in digital assets as well? Or do you want to invest in options as well? And one way of looking at that is that could be informative, right? It, it, it's telling you about other types of, of things you maybe want to be looking at. But another thing way you could be looking at that is that is that influencing your decision to engage in those types of products. And then combine that with other types of features that you see, things like leaderboards in terms of, you know, looking at who has the best returns, uh, badges or, or certificates for, you know, completing certain types of tasks, all these tend to create uh, um, sometimes a competitive environment, sometimes a game-like environment where you're kind of trying to win a prize as opposed to more thinking about than what you're investing in. So the, all these things have implications, both in the product sets that, that the investor actually ends up investing in, in, how frequently they end up trading, what type of decisions they make. And as I noted before, you know, there's probably this world where things are maybe not recommendations uh, that would trigger those requirements, but still potentially have influencing effects. And it's thinking about when those influencing effects are, are being used, what are the underlying responsibilities as exist today uh, based off existing rules, and, but also kind of what should be the underlying responsibilities as we think about it from a rule development process, whether it's the SEC or a Sierra FINRA. Neil, any closing thoughts on, on the gamification topic? Uh, nothing really to add to what I've just said beyond sort of the fact that, well, the comment period has not formally closed, but I, but I, but I think we, you know, we've got a range of comment from industry and, and, and of course, this is an ongoing uh, sort of issue. We've had also, as Jaime noted, the parallel release uh, around GameStop. So I think, you know, this is further study by the commission. Um, there's a lot of content out there, and I think analyzing it, analyzing how, how this works, what the feedback uh, is from from customers and what the impact is on, on on customers and the investment investing public more generally, I think is going to be uh, fertile territory for for the commission. Yeah, no, that's that's great, and I can't thank you both enough for what has been an incredibly insightful conversation. And we we, uh, we have covered quite a bit of ground today, from AI to the cloud, to, to custody, digital assets, and, you know, Bitcoin ETPs and ETFs, and then, and then closing with gamification. That's a, that's a healthy dose of all things, uh, uh, for, for both, uh, Finra's Ophi and, uh, the SEC's FinHub offices. So thank you both for going down that path with us. Um, well, one, one quicker, one, one final question that's maybe a, a little bit more fun, but we, we like to do this with a lot of our guests that, that come on the show, which is, uh, you know, we're, we're getting ready to head into the, 
colder months here as uh, we enter fall and and then soon to be the holiday season would love to hear from from each of you and you only have to answer one of these so don't feel like you have to answer all of them but of course we would welcome all of your recommendations of the the best movie uh, tv show uh, you've seen lately or the best book that you've read lately Jaime why don't we start with you to put you on the spot so this is actually an old book, um, Memoirs of a, a Geisha, that, that I had read uh, uh, recently based on a recommendation for someone in, in, uh, in my church group. It, it's actually a very interesting read. So I'll put out on the table. It doesn't have anything to do with uh, uh, with our <laughs> finance world, but uh, sometimes it's good to deplug a little bit. I was going to say, sometimes that's probably the best policy. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Neil? Uh, let me let me make an appropriately futuristic recommendation, and this is a little weird because I actually haven't seen this film, but I am amped to see it. Uh, okay. I've seen several trailers and, and clips, and I'm tantalized. It, it is a movie of a book I read a long time ago, Dune. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm with you there. All right. So there you go. Um, something that I think FNAF members, other than myself, might, might actually be looking forward to. Well, so... <laughs> Yeah, no, I think that's fantastic. I, I uh, one of my siblings was a huge fan of the book growing up, and and so I know is is equally jazzed up about about going to to see that. So no, that's that's a good one, Neil Jaime. Uh, I really again thank you so much for coming on today's show. Really appreciate all of your valuable you know, insights into a number of different subject matter areas that are happening in, in our industry right now. Uh, thank you again, and look. look forward to having you back on the show here at some point down the road. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. A pleasure from me as well. It's been uh, great having this discussion. Now, we typically don't end the Lessons from the Frontline series shows with a final segment, and today won't be much different. But having just finished attending the 2021 NSCP National Conference earlier this week, and in publishing now another podcast that features representatives from the SEC and FINRA. I just wanted to extend a hearty thank you to all the regulators at all levels, state, federal, municipal, that, that continue to take the time to meet with the business and legal and compliance communities and continue to help push our industry forward. In the opening episode of this podcast, we talked about making things better than the way you found it. To all those regulators, your volunteerism and generosity help move us forward, and it is very much appreciated. And that will do it for today's show. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Calfi and the National Society of Compliance Professionals, and extend a big thank you to our guests, Neil Maitre of the SEC and Jaime Werke of FINRA, for coming on today's show. Please join us again next time on the Securities Compliance Podcast, where we help you put compliance in context. Please check us out on LinkedIn. You can search for Compliance in Context Podcast or on Twitter using the handle at CompliancePod. You can like us and subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you find your favorite podcasts or go to ComplianceInContextPodcast.com to listen and learn more. 